0: What is the purpose of the Law of Moses? Does it have any relation whatsoever to our lives in Christ Jesus as we try to live a life that 's pleasing to god we 're going to talk about that today and a lot more on biblestudypodcasts dot org starting now. Hello everybody and welcome. Once again, you are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, March the 14th of 2011. As always, I'm your host, Toby Logsden. God bless you guys, and thank you so much for downloading this message today. We've got a lot of business to take care of before we actually get to our message today, but if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 13. We're going to be covering verses 9 and 10 today, Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn there, we're going to go ahead and get started in just a moment. Uh, The first thing I want to say is, um, you know, our our hearts and uh, our our prayers go out to the people of Japan, of course. Um, Over the past few days, uh, we've watched these events unfold, and it's pretty scary. It is pretty scary. Um, But for those of you who are in Japan, who are listening, know that uh, I am spending more time praying for you guys than I think I've ever spent time praying for anybody uh, in my life in a given period of time. Uh, The past few days, my my life has been consumed um, with praying for the people of Japan. As these new images come in, as news is constantly breaking, and uh, just seeing that it's a a very, very serious, very uh, ugly situation going on over there. I know that we do have listeners in Japan, so uh, so please know that we are praying for you guys um, as we watch these events unfold. On a brighter note, um, you know, uh, not to uh, overshadow what's going on in Japan, I did want to let you guys know that uh, this coming Tuesday, tomorrow actually, the 15th of March. Uh, I am finally going to be releasing my study called Get the Hell Out of Here. And of course that's a that's a question. Get the hell out of here. You know, is that a doctrine that we should embrace? Is it biblical? Is it ethical? And uh, for those of you who have been long time listeners, uh, you, you, know, you remember this study from about a year and a half ago. And the story was that this was something that a publisher had shown interest in. And so I was contacted by a publisher and they asked if they could have uh, first rights to this book. And so I wrote out the book and proposed it to them, sent send in the proposal in December of 2009, and I hadn't heard anything back from them. Uh, to this day, I haven't heard anything back from them. And th- it's kind of weird. I mean, I've, I've uh, emailed them to let, to, to let them know that I sent it off and to ask if they had received it. They had. Um, but as you guys may have heard, there's a, a big buzz on the internet. There's this book coming out tomorrow promoting universalism. That is the belief that everybody gets to go to heaven, and so really, I, I see this as kind of a, a window of opportunity for me to publish my book. Because while we're talking about hell and God's love and all those things, well, this is, this is part of that discussion. This book is part of that discussion. So if you have a Kindle, or if you have an iPod Touch, or if you have a computer, and of course, you need a computer to even get these podcasts, uh, most likely, um, yeah, you can you can get the Kindle app through uh, through the internet for your computer, but it's going to be released only for Kindle for now. And if there's enough interest out there in this book, I'll uh, I'll eventually put it in paper myself. I will just self-publish it. Uh, you know, waiting a year and a half almost for a publisher. Uh, you know, maybe that's part of the game for publishing? I don't know, but uh, for myself, I just figured, you know, this is a window of opportunity. You know, while people are talking about hell, let's have a really honest discussion about the doctrine of hell. And that's what this book, Get the Hell Out of Here, is about. So at midnight Eastern time tonight, you can get on to Amazon, either through an app or directly through the website, and you can get your copy of Get the Hell Out of Here. So anyway, one quick reminder, uh, we do have a bunch of these little clear window stickers for BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Uh, if you're interested in getting one of these, they are going out to anybody who makes a donation of any size to support our ministry, and you can do that by going to BibleStudyPodcasts.org and clicking on the support box on the right-hand side, and you'll find all the information that you need in there. You can either make a donation through PayPal, or you can send a check or money order to the address provided on that page. So anyway, we've got a lot to cover today. Let's go ahead and get started with that with a quick word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is so relevant to our lives. And Lord, first of all, we we lift up the people of Japan to you. And we just ask, Lord, that you would stir their hearts to turn to you. Lord, we know that in this country, fewer than 2% of the population profess the name of your son, Jesus, as their savior. And Lord, we ask that you would stir their hearts to turn toward you, that they would call on you to save them in this hour, in this time. And we ask, Lord, that you would remind us and the people around us and our communities of how fragile life is and how seriously we have to take the fact that we do have to see you face-to-face someday and make an account for our lives. So, Lord, I ask that today you would speak to us through your word, teach us how to live lives that are more pleasing to you. In Jesus' name amen. Well, there's one question which seems to come up fairly regularly, fairly consistently among followers of Jesus, whether they're uh, brand new followers of Jesus or whether they're people who have been following Jesus for as long as they can remember. That question being, what are we supposed to do with the law of Moses? And here's where I believe the source of confusion stems from. Uh, As we've already seen, in Paul's letter to the Romans, we're no longer under the law. Paul made that explicitly clear for us back in chapter 6, verse 14, where he wrote, you are not under the law, but under grace. And then he'd go on to illustrate that in chapter 7 by likening our relationship to the law of Moses to a marriage. Uh, Once one of the parties in the marriage dies, the other is free from the covenantal obligations of marriage and is thus free to remarry. Now, because all followers of Jesus have died, as Paul told us back at the beginning of chapter 6, our new life is in Christ, who is God's mercy to us, and so we're no longer under the covenant of the law. The fact that we're free from the law is emphasized over and over again, in fact, uh, throughout Paul's letters. Which is kind of hard to miss when somebody reads through the New Testament. In fact, this freedom from the law was so important to Paul, it was actually the main theme of an entire letter. The letter to the Galatians was dealing specifically with that issue. In the book of Galatians, he wrote things like We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by works works of the law, no one will be justified. That's from Galatians chapter two, verse sixteen. And he'd go on to write, continue in this letter, he said, quote, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's from Galatians chapter three, verse three. And of course, when he talks about being perfected by the flesh, he's talking about works the law, abiding by the law. And he'd go on to say, you are severed from Christ, you who want to be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That's from chapter five, verse four. Elsewhere, uh, he wrote, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. So this was a major theme throughout Paul's writings. We are not bound to the law. We are not under the law. We're under grace. On the other side of that argument, however, is the fact that we do still have rules. Uh, there is still a, a sense of morality that we should have. John wrote that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's from 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Now, obviously, we're not supposed to be lawless, right? Why? Because God's desire for us, as his children, is for us to be holy and righteous because he is holy and righteous. And if we're lawless, we're in sin. And God's desire is for us to turn from our sin. Uh, We should also consider the fact that Paul wrote in his final letter, that being the letter that he wrote to Timothy, the second letter that he wrote to Timothy, he wrote that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for instruction, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. All Scripture. Yeah, that means even the book of Leviticus and all the details pertaining to the carrying out of the law of Moses that we find in that book. And that those things all have a benefit for us as followers of Jesus. So what is the benefit. What is the purpose of the law for the believer? Now, I think that this is a question that Paul knew would cause massive, massive amounts of confusion among followers of Jesus. And he's really tried to give us a clear answer. To set the context of his answer to this question, let's just remember that Paul has spent the first few verses of this 13th chapter of Romans talking about the obligations that we as followers of Jesus have. Uh, He's told us that we're obligated to submit to the governing authorities because they've been established by God for the sake of preserving and promoting harmonious relationships among its citizens. The point of this is that we remain in good standing with the authorities so that we've not only got a good reputation among people and therefore we're able to to impact them, we're able to make our light shine, but it's also so that the Christ follower is free to minister outside of prison walls. Now, because we're obligated to submit to the authorities, we're also obligated to pay our taxes. And Paul even took that a step further, instructing us that we shouldn't leave any outstanding debt Unpaid. Render to all what is due to them, is what he said. But there's one obligation that we should never feel like we've completely met, he would go on to say. And that is the obligation to love one another. Now, the objection or question that Paul sees coming is well, Paul, you know, that's great, but what does it mean to love? And so Paul's going to answer this question with an illustration. And thus, he continues writing in verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 13. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, for Paul... Love is the one thing that fulfills the obligations of the law. That's the gist of this passage. The commandments from the law of Moses, which instructed us to abstain from things like adultery, murder, theft, or covetousness, all dealt with what? They all dealt with the way we view and treat other people. Uh, Paul was apparently very well aware of the teachings of Jesus. See, Paul wasn't one of the disciples of Jesus during Jesus's earthly ministry, and thus he wasn't a firsthand witness of the teachings of Jesus. It is clear, however, that at some point, at some time, he took the time to learn from the men who had been Jesus's disciples, because he's obviously very aware of how Jesus answered the very same question about what it means to love. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he answered by summarizing the first few commandments, by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. That's from Mark chapter 12, verse 30. This is essentially a summarization of the first several commandments, right? The The commandments such as, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. And even this one, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All of these commandments are actually a reflection of one's love, uh, their dedication, their loyalty to God. And if we love God with everything we have, which is what Jesus is saying, we'll naturally do these things. And the only possible exception here would be the keeping of the Sabbath, which is the one commandment which was given exclusively to Israel, and which isn't instructed in the New Testament. The importance of meeting regularly with fellow believers is found in the New Testament, however, as is the principle of having a day of worship set aside. The difference being, we're free to pick what day that might be. It can be whatever day we choose, or it can be every day. But Jesus didn't stop with one commandment, even though he was only asked for the single most important commandment. Instead, He didn't even pause as he continued by saying, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He then concluded by saying on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, the purpose of the entire Old Testament, according to Jesus, the purpose of the entire Old Testament was to instruct us in how to love God the way that we should and how to love people the way that we should. That's the message behind all 613 commands from the law of Moses. And that's the message behind every prophet who foretold of God's wrath to come or God's plan for providing a means for salvation. Now, Paul had come from a background of being a Pharisee and hadn't seen the message of loving God and our neighbors behind the law of and the prophets. Now, however, Jesus has turned his life around, and he apparently does see that message throughout the Bible as he quotes the words of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as Jesus taught this, apparently some people who were standing around uh, heard him very clearly, and they caught on to what he was saying. Luke tells us about this encounter that Jesus had in which a lawyer tried to test Jesus on this principle. Starting with Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we read, And a lawyer stood up and put him, that is, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, that is, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is really, really interesting because the lawyer is actually repeating exactly verbatim what Jesus had instructed on the matter. The command to love God with all of one's heart, soul, and strength, or or might, can be found uh, repeated in various forms multiple times through the book of Deuteronomy. The command to love one's neighbor is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where we read, "...you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." So everything is repeated there. The only thing that Jesus added to that, which we don't find in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, is the command to love God with all of your mind. That's something that this lawyer only could have gotten from Jesus. The only place you'll find these Uh, two commands put together and stated the way that the lawyer has answered is when Jesus summarized it that way. So apparently this lawyer was there when Jesus said it. So when Jesus asks the man what the law instructs, the lawyer answers correctly. He's undoubtedly thinking, aha, I've got you now, Jesus. So Jesus replies to the lawyer, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. The lawyer isn't done, however. He doesn't think that Jesus is off the hook. And so he continues with his interrogation, thinking that maybe he's found a loophole in Jesus's instructions. And so Luke continues in chapter 10, verse 29, writing, "...but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, "'And who is my neighbor?' See, this, this guy has overanalyzed the teachings of Jesus to the point where he just can't make any sense of the simplicity of them. And thus he needs clarification on something that should have been completely obvious. So Jesus explains the concept of what a neighbor is by telling the story of a man who's beaten and robbed on his way to Jericho from Jerusalem. And as this guy lay on the side of the road dying, three people passed him. First, a priest passed him and went to the opposite side of the road that the man was laying on. Why would he do that? Why would he go to the opposite side of the road? Because he didn't want to defile himself or render himself unclean in any way. For him, obedience to the law meant cleanliness, which was of more importance to this guy than compassion. And so next, a Levite. The second person to pass by is a Levite who passes him and does the same thing. He doesn't want to be declared unclean either, But the third person to pass him, Jesus says, is a Samaritan who's on a journey. Now, we have to understand that the Jews and the Samaritans absolutely hated each other. For the Jews, a Samaritan was kind of just scum because they were the offspring of Jews who had produced children with idol-worshiping pagans in previous generations. They had tried to combine Judaism with these demonic pagan practices, and so thereby they, they defiled Judaism. It's this Samaritan, however, who feels his heart stirred with compassion for the man and thus nurses the wounds of the man and brings him to an inn, gives him a bed to sleep on and a shelter to rest in until he recovers. The Samaritan man tells the innkeeper that he'll pay for anything that the man needs. Now, is that generous or what? And Jesus concludes the parable with the question, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants Lawyer, which of these three people do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The answer is obvious, right? And the lawyer's caught in his own trap. He answers, the one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus says, go and do the same. Now, Jesus isn't teaching that we're saved by acting with compassion toward others. Rather, when we realize what it means to love God, it'll have an effect on the way that we see other people. When we realize that God loves us, even though we don't Deserve it, And even though we should rightfully be called enemies of God, we should see that the implication is that we should love even those whom we feel don't deserve our love and who could be seen as our own enemies. Thus, compassion toward people isn't the thing that saves us. Rather, it's the result of our correct relationship with God. It's the result of our salvation. It's what should flow from the person who understands how much God loves. Loves them in spite of the fact that they don't deserve it. If God has shown us compassion abundantly, how could we ever deny compassion to those who need it, even even if they're our sworn enemy? Failure to love is something that we can very easily justify, and we often do try to justify it, but it's never, ever to be viewed as the correct response of a follower of Jesus. We should never, we should never be content to feel or demonstrate anything less than pure, selfless love toward people. The principle here is that if we're always acting out of love toward God, it'll be reflected in our interpersonal relationships with people as well. We'll love them. Where real, godly love exists, you won't find sin, because love and sin Cancel each other out. They can't coexist. If you really love someone, you respect the boundaries of the covenant of their marriage or their future marriage. If you really love someone, obviously you're not going to take their life. If you really love someone, you won't take from them what rightfully belongs to them, nor will you even want to. These are all selfish acts. And love is, by definition, completely and unequivocally selfless. So those two things can't exist together. Love and sin can't exist together. When we love God the way that we're supposed to love him, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength and our mind, the result is a hunger to live a life that's pleasing to him. If you read through Paul's letters, you'll find that this desire to be pleasing to God is something that was of paramount importance to him. His desire to please God was the fuel that drove his ministry it's what should fuel our actions as well. When we desire to please someone, it changes the way we act, both toward the object of our love, in this case that would be God, and toward the things that the object of our love values. So because loving one's neighbor as they love themselves isn't a natural action, but is an action which naturally flows from the life of a person who loves God, Paul wrote to the Galatians that the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But how is the whole law fulfilled by loving our neighbor? It's because when we love our neighbors as ourselves, it's evidence to the world that we love God. As Donald Gray Barnhouse noted, quote, if you learn truly to love God, you will discover that you are keeping the law without trying to to keep it end quote amazingly enough, the more we focus on loving people the way that we're supposed to, not only do we realize more clearly just how deeply God really loves us, but we also discover the gifts that he's given us to serve him with, and that 's what living a life that's pleasing to God is all about let's pray, Father, I just pray that our lives, our actions would be stirred and driven by a desire to please you. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to shine our light that you've given us in this dark world. May our actions open doors for us so that we can present the gospel to people. Help us to show the world how much we love you by showing them how much we love them as well as a result of our love for you. We thank you so much for this time, Lord. We pray that you will bless and preserve this message, that you will use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org.